0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Runnymede Radio. In this episode, we hear from Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the Member of Parliament for Beaches East York, a writing he has represented in Parliament since 2015. Mr. Erskine-Smith currently sits on the Standing Committee on Industry, Science, and Technology. Before politics, Mr. Erskine-Smith worked as a lawyer in Toronto. He obtained his undergraduate and law degrees from Queen's University, and later obtained a postgraduate degree in law from the University of Oxford. In this episode, Mr. Erskine-Smith speaks with Mark Mancini, the National Director of the Runnymede Society, about the federal government's continuing response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, with particular focus on how this response implicates the rule of law, constitutionalism, and individual liberty. We hope you enjoy this episode of Runnymede Radio. Thanks for listening.
1: Well, hello, loyal listeners of the Running Mead Radio podcast. My name is Mark Mancini, and I'm the National Director of the Running Mead Society. Today, we are very, very privileged to have uh, with us Member of Parliament Nathaniel Erskine Smith, who is uh, the Member of Parliament for Beaches East York. So, thank you so much
2: for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Great. So, we're going to. Today, the topic we're going to be discussing is obviously the COVID-19 pandemic and the government's response to the pandemic, particularly as it relates to uh, rule of law issues, individual liberty issues, and of course, that's what we're focused on at the Running Week Society. But I'd first like to start um, just by asking a general question. Uh, In general, how is Canada doing at the national level with the COVID crisis? Are we... Are we close to flattening the curve? Are we still a few way, a few months out from that? And what are the current pressure points in terms of uh, reopening, so to speak?
2: We are, without question, having success in flattening the curve, but it is by no means flattened yet. There are real challenges in long-term care facilities where we see, in my community at least, our, we had a local long-term care home where we've lost... Uh, seven seniors already. And I've seen across the city and across the country similar challenges where you have a number where there's a concentrated problem, you see a lot of deaths, and, and that is a, a, a real tragedy. And so there's, I think, more work that needs to be done working with provinces to protect seniors in long term care homes specifically and ensure resources are there as needed. I think we are finalizing plans. Still, there were announcements this past week about economic supports for individuals who have lost income, businesses who are obviously struggling as we see the economic fallout as a result of the health crisis. I think the supports largely on the economic side have been well received across the political spectrum. And we are where the pressure points are. I think I mentioned long-term care homes and the need to work together with provinces. I think still supply chain issues are problematic not only as it relates to PPE which uh, i the government is moving forward with to get resolved but the rapid testing kits are the only way i think out of this challenge is mass testing to ensure that we can reintegrate society fully we're going to we see other countries and i think we'll get to this place as well soon where we have a phased in approach again provinces are have the fundamental responsibility declaring essential services, preventing some services and businesses from being open at all. And so provinces will have to work collectively with the federal government to phase in certain segments of the economy first. and, And hopefully in the fall, we are largely back to some sense of normalcy. But I would say I've also read and understand that we may this may recur where we, the flattening of the curve simply allows us to ensure that there isn't a, a, a dire impact upon our healthcare system all at once, but we are likely to see recurring cases. And hopefully at that point, we do have mass testing. We have proper contact tracing in place that allows us to contain any further outbreak of COVID-19 until we have a vaccine.
1: Great. And what we're going to get to some of the issues later on with the Emergencies Act and the provinces and the role they have to play um, but I now want to, you sort of set out what the government has done, and I think, like you said, some of it has received across the political spectrum support. Um, but I do want to focus on some of what the critics have said about the government's um, way that the government has rolled out, uh, dealt with some of the issues associated with COVID-19. And specifically, I want, to, I want to get your view on the issue of the experts. So some have criticized the government for its over-reliance on experts like Dr. Theresa Tam, the World Health Organization and the critics sort of cite I think two, two issues on which the experts uh, change their minds. So on the first one on closing the border right at the start of the crisis and then second on the use of masks. So what do you say to these critics and how does the government uh, view its relationship with the experts who are helping to craft the COVID-19 response?
2: Well, I think you have to lean on experts heavily in the course of a crisis like this. You don't simply follow along with everything that an expert might say. There absolutely needs to be accountability and scrutiny, but you can't make any decisions in a public health context without consulting public health experts, I don't think. And in the case of, if you want to pick up on, say, the travel ban as an example, and I've certainly seen rhetoric from the president of the United States that suggests the WHO had the wrong idea with respect to travel bans. I mean, I've also read, though, that in Ontario, five of the confirmed cases can be tracked back to China and that hundreds of confirmed cases are tracked back to the United States. So I don't, I don't think proportionality is a part of the picture, too, as you look at these measures. And will these measures ultimately be successful? And if the world could have banned travel out of China immediately, which I think was not a real plausible option at the time, but you could imagine containment may may have been more successful. But Canada taking some action a few weeks after the U.S., and we see the majority of cases coming from the U.S. I, I mean, I don't think the travel ban... I, I hear the concerns and, and criticisms. I, I don't think the evidence suggest that we would have stopped this in any way if even if we'd acted faster to to ban certain travel and certainly we see Italy and others that that did it, even act more quickly still suffer immensely so i i i think all criticisms are um, should be taken seriously where advice has shifted and so i think there there will have to be an after the fact look to say why did the expert opinion shift was it because there was new evidence that was being presented? And, and if so, why was that evidence not available previously? Uh, it's less helpful, I think, today in some ways to do that after-the-fact analysis where I think the focus, unless unless it helps us address issues on the day to date right now. It, but if it's a matter of, oh, should we have done a travel ban faster, maybe close the borders to the U.S. faster, Maybe, but that conversation, I think, is for months from now. On the masks, um, I've read a lot of differing opinions from experts, not only Dr. Teresa Tam. And I do think intuitively, in some ways, you think, well, if this is everywhere and it can be spread so easily, shouldn't we all be wearing masks? And I certainly speaking to my local hospital's CEO, she has said we want all of East Toronto. When they go to the grocery stores, when they're interacting more closely with people, everyone should be wearing masks. Even if it's a small, a relatively small increase uh, in safety, that small increase can save lives. And so, I, I, again, it it's important to say, why is the evidence shifting? When do we get new evidence to make our our new determination? And I, I think those are all critical questions that should be asked down the road and, and where there were, if there was a failing in, you know, in if if evidence did exist, and we weren't relying upon the right evidence, then that should be a conversation to have.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair, and I think that goes to the line between, uh, you, you know, relying on the experts for their specific expertise, and then allowing public justification and criticism of of how the things were rolled out. I think that's a line that uh, has to be maintained at some level.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I also. I, expertise is not uniform, right? So there are different experts and evidence evolves in some way. And in some cases, especially with large scale organizations, you might have prevailing wisdom that then is challenged at a lower level. And then it takes a while for that prevailing wisdom to be overturned because it takes a while for that new evidence to to follow up the food chain, as it were. So did things move quickly enough? I mean, probably it's easy to say, well, wouldn't it have been nice if we had more masks previously? I, you know, after the fact, sure. But I think the, the critical question is, if I'm thinking from an accountability perspective, is did high level public health officials or ministers responsible have information that contradicted the actions that they undertook at the time and if not then they were acting as responsibly as they could based on the evidence that they had
0: hmm.
1: one other uh sort of connected issue and this goes to sort of the distribution of labor to manage this crisis uh so we, we, we talked about the experts and the uh the the, ro- the role of expertise and what they've done but one thing that people have been sort of talking about is our is the way our whether our parliament can adapt Uh, to do its work uh, during the crisis. So do you think there's some way that Parliament could sit regularly during, sit, quote-unquote, regularly during this crisis while maintaining social distancing? Because I think that has a, you know, it has a role to play in in justifying to the public that the politicians, those electorally responsible, are doing the work necessary to manage the crisis.
2: I think there needs to be more parliamentary supervision oversight and we need to play our accountability function more than we've seen in the last month and month and a half. I, the challenge is what does that look like? And I I, I was on a zoom town hall with 700 people uh, a week and a half ago and it was flawless. So if, if that can work, surely we can have 338 members of parliament participating in question period virtually if, if necessary. I think it's it's a challenge when we see Parliament resume on an emergency basis and there are only 30 or so members in the House. If, I, if I'm unable to go to Parliament to do my job on behalf of my constituents, but more than that, to, to exercise my parliamentary function, to ask questions, uh, to put on the record the feedback I've received, to, to hold the government to account To account in some fashion. And I say that as a liberal, but same applies. And to some extent more so if I was an opposition member, I mean, we need parliament to function more than just a reduced quorum on a a reduced quorum emergency basis. We're starting to see movement. So my industry committee is starting up next week. Uh, We're going to meet virtually, we're going to hear expert evidence, and we're going to ask people to ask questions of those experts virtually. The health and finance committee are already meeting in this way. It doesn't seem perfect, but it seems perfectly fine for the circumstances. Similarly, I don't know that we want to resume ordinary activities as it were just yet, and that I would get to introduce my decriminalization bill and speak to that. And, and I think for the short term, a continued specific focus on the pandemic makes a lot of sense. And in that case, I think if I were the speaker, I would like to see debates focused specifically on the measures that the government's rolling out. So if we had a debate on the response benefit, if we had a debate on the wage subsidy, if we had a debate on the PPE situation, if we had a debate on the rapid testing situation, if we had a debate on the uh, the support for small businesses uh, for the through the business account, I mean, there are any number of measures that we can debate and ought to debate in a fuller way, I think.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I, I think parliamentary scrutiny during these times are, is, is immensely important. So I, I share your view on that. And I think that connects to the next question where we're, we're going to get into some more harder legal stuff now about the Emergencies Act. Um, so I listened to your podcast with Craig Forseasy um, uh, a few weeks a bit back, and that was a really interesting, uh, really interesting talk. So I gathered from that, talk that you favor the invocation of the Emergencies Act under the circumstances, correct?
2: Yes, I think now, does it make sense to do it now? I'm not sure it does. My argument at the time was that, and we are effectively ad hoc getting to a place that we could have gotten to more simply through the Emergencies Act. But the Emergencies Act would allow for, obviously, this pandemic is a public health or a public welfare emergency pursuant to that act. Um, We can get into the definition, and I'm happy to talk to that as well. But I think it very clearly falls within the scope of the public welfare emergency. And then when you look to the powers of Section 8, people immediately turn their minds to, well, are my liberties to be restricted? And we can talk about that too. But my interest was actually the spending measures and allowing us to move quickly to spend money, but also have parliamentary oversight as contemplated under the Emergencies Act, I think is a really useful format, rather than what, what ended up happening and on, ad hoc, on an ad hoc basis, which which ultimately worked out in the end. We would negotiate on a unanimous consent basis with the other parties, jam things through in a very short period of time. Some changes ultimately were made to legislation, rightly because the uh, you know the opposition played their parliamentary accountability function well in some cases. But it, it's still relatively slow moving. And then not only that, but we actually got. Specific legislation, the wording of it probably wasn't ideal that it was passed in a rush in a midnight sitting. And the Emergency Act gives, I think, a little bit greater flexibility to adjust as far as it goes. So, yeah, I mean, does it make sense to do it now given we've got this ad hoc UC process in place? Maybe, depending upon how the industrial effort goes. So, another power that exists under the Emergencies Act is to direct. People to provide essential services and to order, make orders in relation to the use of property, the requisition of property, and the disposition of property. And I don't know that we're there yet. It really depends upon how this plays out. I, I, I don't see, I don't see that necessity now as it goes. But I, I certainly think it would have, if, if I were the decision maker, I would have invoked the Emergencies Act, making an, a declaration of an emergency, which it certainly is, and then. That would have been debated in Parliament, and then I would have, as needed, made an order also to be debated in Parliament uh, you know, on, a, on an as-needed basis. Okay. Well, I, I mean, we can go
1: through sort of the issues with the Emergency Act. I think one of them,
2: uh, first, is the sort of the
1: civil liberty, liberty issue. The, I understand that the Emergencies Act was designed to accommodate civil liberties uh, over the past War Measures Act. So it's a substantial improvement in that respect. But do you find, what are sort of the civil liberties risks associated with the invocation of the Emergencies Act? And how does the Emergencies Act itself deal with those sorts of civil liberty issues?
2: So I don't think there's any additional civil liberties concern over and above what the provinces have already invoked, right? So the provinces have invoked their emergencies legislation. We've seen, I, 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 I'm I not as a lawyer previously who has an affinity for civil liberties, I worry a little bit about the scope of some of these general or, uh, orders that have been made to say we can we can make any sort of order uh, that we that we like as far as ex- executive action goes. Uh, that's probably too general for my liking. But so I, I'm certainly it would depend upon the specific language of the order made that would restrict civil liberties. But we, we're already seeing, I mean, we're seeing fines in parks from some bylaw officers for, I mean, I, I don't see additional civil liberties restraints. Uh, other, And we've got the Quarantine Act, too, right? That is a civil liberties restraint for people who, who and that's already in place. So I don't know that the Emergency Act would have seen, a, it would have just been federalized. So you would have seen the federal government doing what the provinces are currently doing. I uh, So I, I don't know that we would have, the only... The only additional civil liberties conversation that we have yet to see, and it's one I think we're likely, a conversation we're likely to have at the industry committee, is in relation to digital contact tracing and where the line is drawn on the privacy front, because that's an area where there's great value, as other countries have seen, in digital contact tracing. But where is the Canadian comfort level with public health measures versus privacy considerations? And is often the solution, which it probably is to respect people's privacy. But would there be such beneficial impacts from a public health point of view to have something more mandatory? That, that I don't know. And I certainly like to hear from the experts on that that attend before our committee. Yeah. So, I
1: mean, you you kind of touched on this, but the, you know, the, there are requirements if, say, the government does want to invoke the, the Emergencies Act at this point. There are requirements. And one of them is the uh, the sort of the provincial inability test that the problem exceeds the capacity or authority of a province to deal with, and the provinces uh, came out uh, in a letter rejecting the use of the, of the federal invocation of the Emergencies Act in part because the provinces are already dealing with these sorts of issues, as you mentioned. So um, you don't. So is it your position that the Emergencies Act wouldn't
2: add much value to what the, the powers the provinces have currently invoked? No, I think well I think it, it would add value specifically as it relates to the federal spending power, which has nothing to do with the provinces. So I think there's a clear power in section 8 that has that has literally nothing to do with the provinces and we're finding we're finding a way to get there with with this ad hoc sort of emergency set of sittings every once in a while and that, and that's okay. It's just I think ultimately wasn't as efficient but but you know we're getting there. It, the provinces are not uniform in rejecting the invocation of the act. Certainly, New Brunswick has deemed it a good idea. I I don't I think that it's it's less of a legal question and more of a federation question. If the provinces, if the federal government, and the provinces can work together to get this done, so be it. We don't need to necessarily federalize what is otherwise within um, what is otherwise the provinces are, are tasked with doing. But I don't actually think that the The limitation isn't there, right? So I think this is well beyond the capacity of provinces to properly deal with. So we're already, we could invoke it if we wanted to. The limitation is actually you can't uh, do anything that would unduly impair the provinces, anything within provincial jurisdictions. So, for example, um, I don't think the province of Ontario has acted quickly enough on commercial rent. So we have businesses that are currently being locked out because they didn't pay their rent on April 1st. And that is a real challenge because their revenue is completely dried up in the month of March. And so it would have made good sense, I think, for the province, just as they issued a moratorium on residential evictions to issue some sort of moratorium. And details could have been worked out, I think, on commercial evictions for the next couple of months. They didn't do that. And just today, the prime minister announced that there may be commercial rent relief coming through the feds. We can't Like even even under the Emergencies Act, I don't think we could have just said we're going to suspend commercial uh, eviction because that that would unduly impair the 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 clear authority of of a province. So um, it's anyway, I I think the provinces probably are overstating the worry of invoking the Emergencies Act. And but I I recognize politically, and I think the the federal government's taken the right approach to say we need to work cooperatively with the provinces, and, and so long as that cooperative work continues in a successful way and we don't think there would be knock-on public health benefits by federalizing some of these actions, then we'll continue with the status quo as it is and and we don't need the Emergencies Act.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, another question on the Emergencies Act, uh, less about the provincial perspective, but more just about what it legally means when it's invoked. Some have, some critics have sort of said that um, judicial review under the Emergencies Act or of the Declaration rather, that the government would issue on the Emergencies Act is limited uh, in the sense that courts would owe a lot of deference to cabinet on administrative law grounds and then on constitutional grounds you know it seems unlikely that the courts would want to meddle with uh, a declaration of emergency uh, you know either on federalism grounds or on on charter grounds so does this sort of if you buy that those premises does that worry you that the courts would have
2: sort of a hands-off approach
1: uh, in this circumstance?
2: No, I mean, not at all in this circumstance. I mean, we're, that's okay. We're into legal hypotheticals, but the this is a national emergency. This is an international emergency, but it's clearly a public welfare emergency under that act. So in this circumstance, it wouldn't worry me at all. Now I don't think there would be great deference due to Parliament if we invoked a public welfare emergency and it wasn't actually a public welfare emergency. So I, I think the the analysis goes to the facts on the ground, is this a public welfare emergency? There is a clear definition there about lives at risk and includes diseases such as COVID-19. So, I mean, I think very obvious from a legal perspective, this falls within that definition, but the courts absolutely would be able to oversee the invocation of the Emergency Act to see whether it falls within the four corners of the definition of the, of the legislation. The legislation, okay. Well, uh, I have just one final question
1: for you, and it's, uh, it's, you mentioned this earlier, and it's about the principle of proportionality. Um, so we've, you know, a lot, Professor Paul Daly, who's sort of a leading administrative law scholar in Canada, has written about using the principle of proportionality as we understand it, say, under the Oaks test. Um, as a way of measuring the effect of government action on civil liberties in, in the case of a crisis, so he's asked, you know, the public to look at the objective of, of legislation, to look at whether the means are rationally connected to the, uh, the objective, and so on. Um, do you think this is a useful way of viewing government action, or is there even is there even a facial plausible case that in some cases, to protect public health, governments might have to take disproportionate action in the
2: interim period? Hmm. I mean, let's think about it through the lens of COVID-19 to say if we had a lockdown for a two-week period of time and it was a very heavy lockdown and we did it right away, but we were more likely to be we came out of that two-week lockdown and we had flattened the curve in a very successful way. It would have felt disproportionate at the time, but after the fact, one could have made the argument that it was proportionate in the grand scheme of things because if we hadn't taken those actions at the time, we we would have faced many deaths. And so I think uh, proportionality has to be a, I mean, I think is an overriding consideration um, in government action that, uh, and even when you look at the travel ban or you look at any of these community distancing measures, everything comes down to proportionality that, of course, essential services have to stay open because even though there's an increased risk of, COVID spread because services are open, those services are essential. And so we, we, we weigh the, uh, the overall benefits to society. Um, so I think proportionality cuts through everything because it's a sense of reasonableness, right. And all, you know, it, all government action, one hopes is reasonable in the end, although not always the case. Uh, but, uh, I mean, from a is sometimes just everything depends on what works. I, I think in the end, and and everything also depends upon what we, as a civil society, as a democratic society, what princ- what principles we 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 hold in the end. And so this gets to the previous conversation a little bit about digital contact tracing. But I mean, you look at other countries that that seem more comfortable with surveillance, as an example, and is that disproportionate or proportionate? Okay, that's one of the questions, but it's disproportionate proportionate in relation to what values. So it's not just, is it going to help us from a public health perspective? And it's also, are we is it disproportionate in relation to the privacy values, the human rights values that we hold, right? So uh, I think that that has to play into the picture as well. And it's not so easy just to say proportionality. It's also proportionality in reference to what? It's not only public health outcomes. Right,
1: and also, I suppose as you mentioned, is proportionality in terms of the time. I mean, something that might seem disproportionate in one instance might, over the long term, appear proportionate. So um, that goes, I think, to view how to view the problem uh, in its essence.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, and they're not easy, not easy because we are in a situation right now where we are having some success, but it is taking a major toll on our economy, obviously, and you could imagine a different situation where there was a much shorter but more severe lockdown that maybe wouldn't have worked, but if did work, we would have come out of this potentially faster. Now, would that have been worth the 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 impact upon civil liberties? Maybe not. And, and it may not have worked in the end anyway, in which case we all would have pointed to it and say, absolutely, that was disproportionate. So it's not, it's not, uh, not always easy. And I think the government is doing the best that it, it can, not only, relying upon public health expertise as far as it goes. And I say this not only about uh, my own government, but I I would say also about other levels of government from other parties too. I I think rightly people have uh, lauded uh, the Ford government here in Ontario for acting far differently certainly than I expected uh, for government to act in a crisis and and credit to them. And so I I think not only reliance on public health expertise, but also um, doing the best they can to find a balance between taking swift measures but also ensuring that we are not overriding the values that we hold
1: Mm. I think that's a good place to end the the
2: podcast today so I want to thank you uh, MP
1: Erskine-Smith for coming in to chat about the COVID-19 response and some of these questions I know all of our listeners will appreciate it Uh, thank you again to all of our listeners for tuning in today and stay tuned for our next episode in the coming weeks thank you
0: listening to Runnymede Radio. To learn more about the Runnymede Society, visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.